Welcome to the Jungle, everybody. You remember that song? <laughs> yeah. I Welcome to the Jungle. <laughs> that song is, I'm, I don't know how I feel is about that. Is that a GNR? A Welcome to the Jungle? No, that's, um, what's his face? Brett Stevens? Yeah, it's Guns N' Roses. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wait, no, isn't Brett Stevens the, uh, the writer for Wall Street Journal or New York Times yeah, now? Yeah. So who who's Stevens? Who am that, I thinking of? Brett Michaels. Brett Michaels. Brett <laughs> Stevens. Oh my God. This this thing right here does not work. <laughs> Don't trust a word I've ever said. It's a hilarious image though. Brett Stevens I know, right? singing that song. So <laughs> he I, definitely likes that I thank song. Thank you for that. You're welcome. That guy likes that song for sure. Only the true like political junkies and like 80s music listeners will know that. Yeah. We'll get the references there. <laughs> All right, anyway, sorry. Weird weird start <laughs> off, to the show. Off to a good start here. Yeah. Go ahead. So anyway, <laughs> the name of the show is not The Jungle. The name of the show is Crystal Kyle and Friends, and I welcome all of you to it. Crystal, it's a pleasure to be sitting here next next to you. My pleasure. You've gotten a lot of uh, hosting time with me this week. I have. You're not sick of uh, it yet? You kidding me? Not even close. I'd rather do a show with you all day, every day, than Aww. sit there and yell at myself in my studio. That's so sweet. You know? Well, I'm a sweet guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of stuff to uh, talk about today. We have an amazing guest, uh, Stephen Donziger. He's, I'm not even gonna say anything, just watch the show. Yeah. You're gonna be like, good googly moogly, this is wild, this is insane. All I'll say is I'm adding to the list, we have Julian Assange, we have Edward Snowden, and now in my mind we have Stephen Donziger. Yeah. Because the, it, his story is just that wild just that extreme he's being totally persecuted and oppressed in a way that's above and beyond what i ever thought would have been possible in today's day and age in the yeah. united states of america and is incredibly revealing both in terms of what they've done to him but also what it says about america so yeah yeah no that's exactly right so i i think this uh, this is i'll stop there but it's uh it's important this is a very important episode yeah. every now and then we stumble across one where we say this is actually like we're doing the job here that should be done on all the big major mm -hmm. outlets if the media actually was, you know, worth half a shit. Not you know? corrupt. Yes. Yeah, correct. Completely. Um, so still a bunch of stuff going on. Um, so we just got the news right before we came on air. I find this interesting. The uh, U.S. District Court D.C. judge by the name of Carl Nichols, he denied a motion by Rudy Giuliani. Sidney Powell and Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, to dismiss the 2020 election defamation suit filed against them by Dominion Voting Systems. Wow. So let me explain what that means in like regular schmegular English. What that means is um, the defamation suit waged by Dominion Systems against these three hardcore Trump stands, it's going to proceed. Now, the reason that's so interesting is because in this country, Libel, slander, defamation, and any sort of crimes involving speech, they are notoriously hard to prove. And so for a judge to say, actually, there's enough there for this to proceed, that doesn't bode well for these characters. Mm -hmm. And worth noting, this was a Trump judge. That's right. This it was guy a Trump-appointed judge. On the bench by Donald J. Trump and was extraordinarily dismissive of their <laughs> argument. I have a little bit of the 44-page opinion here. He says, to start with, as an initial matter, there is no blanket immunity for statements that are political in nature. So in other words, like just because they're political in nature doesn't mean you can literally say whatever you want. It is true that courts recognize the value in some level of, quote, imaginative expression or rhetor rhetorical hyperbole in our public debate, but it is simply not the law. 
that provably false statements cannot be actionable if made in the context of an election. Um, And then he says, the question then is whether a reasonable juror could conclude that Sidney Powell's statements in particular expressed or implied a verifiably false fact about Dominion. This is not a close call. So that is, again, Trump judge. So that says a lot. Couple things. You know you're you fucked up when you have to bring up in your defense rhetorical hyperbole, bro. Right. So in other words, you're admitting totally not true the stuff I said. Right. And in fact, it was either One American News Network or Newsmax, the networks to the right of Fox News, or both of them that had to go on air and apologize, basically. And read a statement from like Dominion. Uh, yeah. So the things that we've been saying on this network for the past couple of weeks, uh, there's no evidence of this, and it's been found in a court of law that, in fact, blah blah blah. They had to go yeah. out and like read an apology. And also, this reminds me of when they had the lawsuits about the election, and there were about sixty of them, and Trump lost fifty-nine of them. Right. And the one that they won was on some like procedural nonsense that doesn't. It changed the, the the results in any state. So it's like they had their day in court. They lost. And even Trump judges were like, there's no there there. And now basically we're sort of seeing the same thing here. Yeah. Where, um, and guys, I just so we're clear, I have zero sympathy for any sort of election uh, voting systems that are private. I think that should all be public. I think it's crazy that we have private companies involved in that in any way, shape, or form. But the fact of the matter is, even though it's private, that company's like, none of what they're saying is true, so we're going to make sure they can't say it and don't say it, and they're going to retract it because now, in the eyes of Dominion, it's like you're ruining any you know potential we have for any sort of future contracts for elections and whatnot. You know what I mean? So they're yeah. trying to protect their reputation. Remember, a lot of these people, they argued that like Venezuela hacked the vote and moved them to Biden. I, c- I couldn't even keep up with the oh, it was, layers because there's yeah. la- and there's like new ones being invented all the time. I mean, this is basically 44 pages of a Trump-appointed judge saying, you can't just make up blatant lies. (laughs) Right, Right? I mean, he says says about Powell, these statements are either true or not. Either Sidney Powell has a video depicting the founder of Dominion saying he can change a million votes, or she does not. (laughs) Right, so it's not like... She was the craziest of all of them, by the way. She was the craziest. Mm -hmm. She was so crazy. Remember, there was a time when even the Trump team was like, she's not with us anymore. That's how out there... Sydney Powell was, and she'd go on Newsmax and go on all these places, and she was a total hero, and I think still is, to a lot of corners of the Trump base. Um, and this isn't like, you know, something where there's like a grain of truth and it's getting stretched to mm-hmm, all ends, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we saw there with these suits against uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox and Rachel and Maddow. And Rachel Maddow, right. Both yeah. of which got dismissed because they fell into that, and both the Fox lawyers and the MSNBC lawyers argued like, no one really believes what these people are saying. Yeah. Anyway, they mm-hmm. leaned on that defense. But in that case, it actually landed because there was some tiny shred of a grain of truth. They didn't just make up something like, I have a video showing the founder <laughs> of Dominion saying he changed a million votes for Biden when that is just not in fact the case. So, so do you think do you think that they'll eventually win uh, Giuliani and Powell and the or do you think eventually Dominion will end up winning? I mean, I would have kind of betted the other direction bet the other direction before this but when you got a trump judge who is completely unequivocal so, and blistering here i think they're in some trouble so i still think ultimately that they're going to be on land on the side of like 
Political speech. Political speech. But I think, I honestly think that the argument that they have to make and they eventually will make is like, even lies are allowed in the sphere of political discourse. Because you, you can't, you can't you ban would. lies. But that, yeah, ultimately that's the argument you have to make is like, yeah, they lied. They're totally full of shit, but lies aren't illegal. So there you go. So I do think ultimately they'll end up winning. But I love, it, it's embarrassing just on, on that fact that it, it's been... Now the, the case can proceed, and yeah. it was a Trump judge who was like, there's merit here enough to proceed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and in separate Stop the Steal Insanity News, Mike Lindell has been, yeah. he's <laughs> now been at the forefront and saying, I'm going to, you know, I've got this evidence, and it's incontrovertible, and the Supreme Court is going to rule nine to nothing. And, and Trump will be back, be back by back, August. Back it's by August. Fall. Yeah. Right. Well, now it's the fall. They moved it again. Right. So apparently uh, even Steve Bannon had sort of had it with Lindell's claims and had kind of like a put up or shut up moment because he keeps teasing like, oh, this evidence and these data packets that show yeah, that- I covered him recently. I think this was like China, this version is China changed the votes. Well, yeah, so I covered now. this recently on my show. They're saying, he's saying, and he, and he gives like these specifics that makes, you know, people think like, oh, he must be he's right. He must have it, yeah. But um, actually CNN of all outlets did a decent job because they actually did some investigation for this, which they rarely do. But when they're, it's making fun of a, right wing, a far right winger, of course they could do that. So they went uh, to one of the counties where he said Trump got 3,000 3, so, and some odd votes um, switched from him to Biden. And the person who's the head of the election in that county uh, was like, we're not even connected to the internet. So it's not even possible for China to hack the election because we're not even on the internet. Right. And so, and they had like nine different election experts um, go through a lot of his claims. And the thing, he shows this like metadata thing where like, on screen, you see like a bunch of numbers and letters, and you think, "Oh, that's serious." Those and, are supposedly the data packets yeah, that show it were it and, was. And stolen. the people who watched it, and the election experts were like, "This has nothing uh, like what you say on it. On it, like it's not there." So he's going around making a fool of himself. Yeah. To your point about uh, Sidney Powell being the craziest, actually, I don't know if you said that or I said that because my brain doesn't work, but um, there was an amazing story from Jonathan Swan uh, in Axios where he had a source inside the White House, and you're right, in the days after the election, or the weeks after the election, you had Trump and he had a bunch of lawyers on, on his staff, and then you had Michael Flynn... Oh, yeah. You had John, uh, no, not John Swan, I'm sorry, uh, Sidney Powell. Mm -hmm. And who's the other one? There was a third one, too. Lynn Wood, maybe? Could be Lynn Wood. Mm -hmm. And they were, apparently, they're in the Oval Office, and Trump is sitting there hearing out both cases. On the one side, you have uh, some of his staffers who are like, we've done 60 lawsuits, and we lost almost all of them. There's nothing here. We're not going to get anywhere. And you had Michael Flynn saying... Uh, we think you should deploy the military in the U.S. and redo the election. Yeah. And Trump apparently would sit there listening to the crazy people and then listening to the few people who were sane in the room. <laughs> and he would go back and forth. And he was genuinely torn. He was genuinely torn. But at the end of the day, thankfully, he actually ended up more siding with the reasonable people. The quote-unquote reasonable. Right. No, the, one, yeah, low bars, the ones who were like, yeah. you didn't, like, you didn't win the election, dog. But he ended up effectively siding with them, probably because it would have required him to do more shit to go in the direction with the crazy yeah, people. He doesn't have but a... Sidney Powell, that, again, I don't know if it was Linwood or Sidney Powell, but these are the people who literally were saying that like Venezuela 
hack the election. Mm -hmm. And Trump was listening to them, taking them seriously. Yes. And in his heart, he wanted to believe those people because yeah. it, it absolves him. It makes it look like he won. And his brain was like, I, these guys are saying we lost all these cases. These guys are saying because they would keep the, the people on Trump staff who were sane kept screaming at Sidney Powell and, and Mike Flynn. And they were like, give me any evidence. You keep making these claims and then you lose in court. So where's the evidence? Give me anything. I'll take anything. And they don't have anything. Right. So, but it was, it, I remember reading that article and just being riveted because, you know, you can put yourself in the room and you can see like Trump going back and forth. You could see them both, both sides passionately making their cases. And it's like, you think the conversations that they're having in the White House are like high-level conversations about what marginal tax rate should we have on the top earners? But no, th basically the conversation was like, should we lie and steal the election or should we not? Yeah, should we lie and steal the election or lie and not steal the election? Like, Correct. Yeah. And that is end up, end, what, at, happened. what happened. Exactly. Well, and on this, uh, I got some more details for you on this Mike Lindell. I guess he just did a... Uh, Cyber symposium. Yeah, his symposium, his like stop the steal symposium thing. And this is Steve Bannon on his podcast said of this thing, which apparently turned into a giant cluster because no actual evidence, surprise, surprise, no actual evidence was ever revealed. He said, I think this is a mistake. I want to be brutally frank. I think there's so much work to get through the day. It's now time to really get to the details, basically saying like, come on, dog, give me something. Put up or shut up. Yeah. Like now that you've been teasing this thing out saying it's going to go to the spring, all this, and you still haven't given us anything. Why? Because there is nothing, ultimately. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, where there is something, Crystal, yes. is um, when it comes to Rand Paul. Senator Paul. This is, this, is a, this is an ugly one. Yeah. Well, as you know, in the most insane of circumstances, for some reason, members of Congress are allowed to buy and sell so stocks. And as we have talked about before, plenty of them do this. And it turns out they're really amazing at picking great stuff. Mm. It must be because they're just so brilliant and insightful that our members of Congress, our public servants, consistently beat the experts and yeah. the overall market performance is just because we're really electing the best and the brightest. This is all sarcasm in case for anybody mm -hmm. who can't tell. Well, Rand Paul uh, gets added now to this list. This is from the Washington Post. Rand Paul discloses 16 months late mm. that his wife bought stock in a company behind COVID treatment. That company is Gilead. You may remember them as the maker of remdesivir. Mm. And the timing of when he she bought this is important. Um, this was, you know, remdesivir is an antiviral drug. It was used to treat COVID-19. She bought this stock on February 26, 2020. That was before the threat of COVID was fully understood by the public. I'm reading from the Post right now. And before it was even classified as a pandemic by the World Health Organization. So this is well before they ended up using this as the antiviral treatment. Correct. And before, mm, you know, I mean, take yourself back to the end of February, there were news reports about like, this is going on and we're not sure and whatever. But this was before things were locked down and we sort of had that week where all of a sudden it was like, oh, shit, we need to really take this seriously. So before that, before, you know, it was public knowledge that remdesivir would be, you know, used as a treatment in this massive pandemic that ended up obviously hitting this country very hard. 
she was buying stock in Gilead and then failed to report it until 16 months late. So uh, I'll, I'll say it plain here. They There's this little club and we ain't in it. And mm-hmm. people were whispering to other people behind the scenes, this thing's coming, look out, uh, react accordingly. And yeah, they somebody who had knowledge of this in advance, let him know, and he went and made money off of that situation. Now, what does this remind me of? Well, first and foremost, it reminds me of, remember Kelly Leffler? Yeah. Who ran in Georgia Mm -hmm. as a Republican. She has the personality of a dirty diaper. (laughs) I mean, just listening to her is like watching paint dry. It really is like the worst. Oh, my God. (laughs) Zero talent as a politician. She didn't even get elected, right? Wasn't she just like put in there? Yeah, she got appointed and then she lost the reelect. That's right. So the story came out about her and a bunch of others, right? That they were right before COVID hit. There was some congressional meeting or or Senate meeting or whatever. And people were told, a dog. We're in trouble, and things are about to crashington, so make some decisions if you know what I'm saying. So what happened? A lot of these scumbags ended up selling a lot of stock, right? Cashing out while the market was still high right before the crash came, but they were basically told, market's going to crash, so get your act together. And, and then, again, they did it. This also reminds me of, remember Representative Tom Price? I don't know if you remember this story. He was in the Trump administration. He was the head of health and human services. This is a guy who, I forget the dollar amount. I'm actually trying to look it up as we speak, and I'm not going to be able to get it on time. But this is a guy who invested in a company uh, for some sort of medical device or medicine. And then when he became health and human services secretary, he acted in a way that made the price of the stock he bought go up. Mm. This is so common and nobody ever talks about it. Yeah. And it, listen, it's very, it's very, very simple. If you want to be a public servant, you have to be a public servant. You can't do this weird middle ground where, you know, you're going to cash in and get rich. No, you decided to be a public servant. Now, I'm, in, I'm fine. I'm in favor of public servants getting compensated well. I want you to live a decent life, and I want you to serve. But ban them from owning stocks. You have to ban them from owning stocks. You have to ban the revolving door. I think that once you're in this field, you can't go to Wall Street and get mega rich. Because guess what? You know what happens? If you can go there, if you can become some sort of lobbyist, well, you're going to end up serving those interests when you're in power. Because ultimately, you're going to end up caring more about yourself and your greed and your ambition and your narcissism and perhaps your family, you're going to care more about that than serving the American people. So, eh, what's the big deal if I give a subsidy to fill in the blank with whatever hedge fund? You know, what's the big deal if I give a special tax break to these assholes who are paying me and who are going to get me a job when I get out? This stuff shouldn't be allowed. It is rank corruption. And the fact of the matter is in this country, we have legalized bribery. And it's just, it's amazing to me. Like, these are the things that I think should be huge scandals. Right. But instead of this, what do we get? Bitching over some politically incorrect tweet right. from somebody with no power. Well, you know? and I want to make this bipartisan because um, there's also a story recently that only got covered really in right-wing media about Nancy Pelosi, whose That's husband right. yes. bought $10 million in Microsoft shares um, right around the time that they secured a lucrative government contract to supply U.S. Army combat troops with augmented reality 
headsets. Pelosi's net worth um, increased million, right? by millions during the pandemic um, and, you know, over the course of her time in public service, quote unquote, I'm right. doing air yeah. quotes for mm-hmm. people who can't see that. Um, and so this is, you know, this isn't a partisan issue. This is no, one it's of not. The, this is part of the bipartisan consensus. And the reason it remains this way is because it would have to be Congress <laughs> that passes the law that says we're not going to own stocks anymore. And they are never going to do that. Shouldn't own. There should be no owning stocks. There should be no owning stocks. And like I always say, you know this, I would punish corruption on the same level as you punish rape, assault, murder. Like, I think it's that bad. It's so damaging. I think it's that bad. It is so damaging. I also want to do a quick plug for, um, on Twitter, Unusual Whales. Let me just actually get their handle here so that I can plug it. Because they track, um, and they send Sagar and I their stuff all the time. They track a lot of this, like, congressional trading at a level that you really don't see ever from mainstream media. Just based on the publicly available reports they took take a look at what's out there and just say, hey, guys, you know, yeah, they so, made these trades and then this happened from the government or, hey, look at on average how they somehow managed to always beat the market. So definitely give Unusual Whales a follow if you care about this stuff. Right. And also, since we're gonna, we're plugging things along this these lines, yeah. Sludge does the same thing. Mm, they do Sludge. a good job. All they do is cover corruption. And for so. Unusual Whales, it's at Unusual underscore whales right and for us it's for the sludge one it's at sludge s-l-u-d-g-e um and then also ProPublica has done a lot of decent stuff they do around this mm-hmm. so yeah i mean but again this is the st- like i feel like you're right this outlet's great sludge is great it's like this is the stuff that you should be doing on cnn right cnn should be talking about this and How, focusing right. on this you takes it takes you know somebody on some independent person to go and right. look somebody at with no money available reports Right. right. They exactly. didn't need to have like insider access or millions of dollars in resources. They just had to actually care That's and right. go compile the information. Mm-hmm. That's exactly Something right. You would think that these multinational, you know, gigantic media corporations with their millions and millions, millions of dollars could do, but they don't seem to care. In a world that made sense, yes, they would do that. Yes. Um, that, might, that might jeopardize their access to these politicians. Indeed. So indeed. So why don't you go ahead and introduce the lovely people to our amazing guest. So I don't know if you guys have followed this story closely or not, but it is incredibly important. Uh, Steve Donziger is a human rights attorney who won a landmark settlement against Chevron, and they have sought to destroy him ever since. Um, I think, you know, in some ways the details are complicated and in some ways they aren't. I really wanted to have him on so that he could lay out from start to finish what happened so that people feel like they really, really understand it well enough to be able to explain it simply because this case exposes so much about the reality of America, the reality of our judicial system, the reality of corporate influence, and the way that all comes together in a very, very specific light. So with that said, I'm very happy to bring in human rights attorney Stephen Donziger. Stephen, it's so great to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Sure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So what I really wanted to do today is, um, you know, your case is extraordinarily important. And I think sometimes people feel a little overwhelmed by the details of it or they feel like they don't know all the pieces that they need to know. So I want to spend some time with you walking through from beginning to where we are now, everything that's happened. And then I also want to sort of give people like 
the bullet points of how to talk about it in a in a concise way that lands with people. So let's start with like the long version of the story. Um, you're uh, an attorney. You're a human rights attorney, and you got involved in a case involving uh, Chevron destroying the Amazon, poisoning a lot of people there, indigenous people. Talk to us about how you came to work on that case and what were the details there to start with. Sure. Again, thank you for having me. You know, the reason I ended up working on a case in Ecuador, being from New York, is in law school I met an Ecuadorian student um, who introduced me to this problem. And he and I and other people, other lawyers and scientists worked together to go down to Ecuador. Um, in the 1993, we took our first trip. Um, we wanted to do an investigation to see what had really happened with, with this terrible environmental disaster. And we spent several days in the affected area and we were just blown away by what we saw, um, which led to the filing of the lawsuit uh, in the fall of 1993 in US federal court. Um, you want me to keep going? It's, it's a, tell, us, you know. tell us about the devastation that you saw there. Sure. So, you know, that was probably the worst part of it. And I think it's once you see that kind of level of devastation, it's really hard to turn your back on it. You know, um, we saw literally lakes of oil sludge in on the floor of the Amazon rainforest in areas where indigenous peoples have lived for thousands of years in prosperity. You know, we saw open air toxic waste pits that Chevron's predecessor company, Texaco, had gouged out of the jungle floor and they installed pipes in the sides of these pits to run their toxic cancer-causing contents into rivers and streams like down the hill where people were drinking out of. Um, you know, these pits, these oil pits in a normal situation would be lined and the contents would be disposed of. What Chevron did is they just built them unlined and, you know, designed the system to, <clears throat> excuse me, to pollute the Amazon for decades, if not centuries, you know? So the, the practices that we saw were, you know, in terms of what was just visible to the naked eye on that first trip were appalling. Um, and I since learned when I've sort of studied the normal, you know, technology or operational practices of this industry. And by the way, as everyone knows, the fossil fuel industry is not exactly known for being a non-polluting industry, it pollutes a lot. But what Chevron did in Ecuador was beyond the pale, even for the industry. I mean, no one had ever seen anything like this. I've talked to oil workers who worked in dozens of countries doing this kind of work. And this is this is problem number one in terms of the world's worst oil pollution. It's a tragedy that it took place in the pristine, delicate ecosystem of the Amazon. Um, it's, it's a double tragedy that it took place in areas where frontline defenders of our planet, the indigenous peoples live and had lived for millennia. Um, you know, there's just tragedies all around here, but the fundamental problem was tech, Chevron's greed in dumping all of this toxic waste into the environment. So will you describe there, is this against the law domestically or internationally or both? I guess, tell me a little bit about um, your case against Chevron. Well, it is against the law um, and the courts found it to be such. You know, when you sort of ask what is the law when it comes to oil pollution, it's generally regulations that every jurisdiction, be it a country or in the U.S. A state, establishes that allows maximum levels of tolerances for certain trace amounts of pollution to be put into the environment without it being illegal. Um, and in Ecuador, which had, which 
you know, which had much more lax regulatory standards for this kind of thing than the United States or than most states in the U.S. Um, even in those lax standards, what Chevron did was way, way over the tolerances. For example, um, Ecuador had a maximum tolerance of 1,000 um, PPH, PPH, uh, I'm sorry, PPM parts per million um, of oil in the environment. And the U.S. was 50, 125 in certain states. So it was like 10 plus times higher than the U.S. And Chevron was way over that, you know, even by their own sampling, sometimes 10, 20 times over. I mean, they just literally dumped the stuff um, into the environment deliberately. So um, it was totally illegal by Ecuadorian standards, by Ecuadorian law, by U.S. law, and just by regular tort law that requires, you know, actors, particularly those in dangerous industries like the oil industry, to exercise due care so as not to harm anybody. Um, and that was like the last thing on Chevron's mind was to exercise due care. I mean, they just went in and rampaged their way um, through the Amazon, taking out as much money as they possibly could and leaving behind this massive toxic waste, which now 50 plus years later is still afflicting the indigenous peoples and the rural communities in the area such that many are dying. So what was that trial like? I mean, you're taking on this gigantic behemoth, which is incredibly powerful here domestically and internationally. I'm sure had, you know, all kinds of things going on in Ecuador, trying to pull this string and that string. What was that trial actually like? So the the trial in Ecuador um, was unlike any trial I had ever seen and not something that as an American lawyer I had been trained to sort of do. Um, I mean, there's just a fundamental difference between a civil law system like in Latin America, which has its origin in the Spanish legal system versus a common law system like we have here in Canada, Australia, Great Britain, which has its origin in English common law. And one of the main differences is that in the civil law in Ecuador, the court, the judge takes the parties into the field where they do field inspections to determine the evidence, to gather evidence and to determine what happened um, in a way you would never see in a U.S. court. So a lot of the trial in Ecuador consisted of literally years of dozens of site inspections um, involving both parties going with their scientists and taking water and soil samples to determine levels of pollution that Chevron was responsible for at literally hundreds of oil production sites. That was basically what the trial in Ecuador consisted of. Now, you throw in some witness testimony and also efforts, in my view, by Chevron's lawyers to obstruct the trial and to delay the trial and ultimately to sabotage the trial because the evidence was so bad for them. They knew they were going to lose. So their strategy in the middle of the trial kind of changed to, oh, let's just hope this never ends. Let's delay it for as long as possible. Let's file, you know, hundreds of duplicative motions to tie up the court. So we had to fight through all that just to get to the end of the trial. And largely because of Chevron's delaying tactics, it took eight years to finish the trial in Ecuador. Oh, that's incredible. So uh, oftentimes we see, like with international law, for example, uh, at the end of Trump's time in office, the International Criminal Court told the United States, hey, you cannot sanction medicine going into Iran. But the United States' response to that was to say, okay, go ahead, sanction us, International Criminal Court, sanction us with your army. Oh, that's right, you don't have an army. So we pulled out of the court, and then we kept sanctioning the medicine going into Iran. So I guess my question for you is, um, what happened in the case, and when the decision was made, how did Chevron respond to it? 
Well, I think the point you bring up is an important kind of meta point, which is what happens in the world when, you know, one powerful country like the U.S. government decides not to comply with the rule of law. And I think in the private civil law world, that's exactly what's happening to the people of Ecuador. I mean, Chevron has simply decided not to comply with a court decision in a case where it had accepted jurisdiction and fully litigated. And that's just a tragedy for the rule of law. And it's unbelievable to me that now 10 years after the people of Ecuador won this judgment, $9.5 billion judgment for against Chevron for this massive pollution called the Amazon Chernobyl, they still haven't paid a penny and many people have died. And that's the fundamental problem with the situation right now. Um, so, you know, what Chevron decided to do, rather than pay a judgment that it owes people it poisoned down in Ecuador in a case that it legitimately lost, is they have hired literally dozens of law firms and 2,000 lawyers largely to attack me and other lawyers um, to try to distract attention from what I believe were the environmental crimes they committed in the Amazon, which are still out there. Um, and nobody disputes that this happened. I mean, the facts are the facts and, and, and they're, they're still there and people are really suffering. So, you know, part of their strategy is to make me the story. And, you know, it's tricky for me. I mean, I'm, you know, I get asked, for example, to be on this, this podcast and others. And I must get out there and sort of voice these concerns about this, this travesty, this miscarriage of justice that's happening because of Chevron's, you know, unethical and I believe illegal behavior across courts all over the world. Um, but on the other hand, you know, people start thinking this case is about Steve Donziger. It's not. It's about the people of Ecuador and the fact that they won. And, you know, I was part of a team, by the way. I'm not the only lawyer on this case. I was part of a large team of lawyers. And our team um, worked hard with the leaders of the communities, with the leaders of the indigenous peoples to win this historic judgment in, in a way that had never been done before in, in the history of litigation. Um, and now what Chevron is doing to me is just wrong on every level. It's, it's unethical, um, it's abusive, and I believe it's illegal. So, you know, that's where we stand. 10 years later, they have not paid one penny. I'll point out by, comparison. BP, you might remember the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which happened in 2010. Ten years later from that spill, which by the way was an accident, what happened in Ecuador was deliberate. So what happened in Ecuador is far worse than what happened in the Gulf of Mexico. But ten years later after that accidental spill, BP has already paid out $70 billion to the victims, the people harmed, and in court fines for their negligence. Chevron, again, has not paid a dollar. They have paid probably two, $3 billion to their 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers they use to attack everyone who wants to try to help the people of Ecuador, including me. But they have not paid a penny to the people of Ecuador, and that's just wrong. What do you think are the differences between those two? I mean, I doubt BP is that much more moral than Chevron. So why was it in that case they were assessed a penalty and they actually paid. And in the case of Chevron, they just act with complete impunity and haven't paid a penny. That's a great question. I think it has a lot to do with, frankly, environmental racism. What do I mean by that? In Ecuador, where the people affected are exclusively of color, indigenous peoples, rural farmers, 
Um, it's isolated geographically. It's a country that doesn't have a tradition of regulating the oil industry in a significant way. And they just felt like they could get away with it. In the United States, where our president at the time, Barack Obama said, they're gonna pay and I'll put my foot on their neck, talking about BP if I have to, to get them to pay. They put up a $20 billion compensation fund within two weeks of the spill without even a lawsuit having been filed. You know, people of Ecuador litigated for 28 years have won multiple lawsuits affirmed by six appellate courts around the world, including the Supreme Court of Canada, by the way, and the Supreme Court of Ecuador, and Chevron still hasn't paid a penny. And I, again, I think it's it's the fact that Chevron, you know, is constantly calculating, like most big oil companies, what it can get away with. And I think they think they can just get away with it because it's in Ecuador, whereas I think BP calculated they could not get away with it because it was in the United States. So now walk everybody through exactly what Chevron did to come after you. And also, are they going after other lawyers who were on the case as well? They have gone after other lawyers, but they've directed most of their fire to, against me personally. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. You know, one is they found a very friendly judge here in New York where I lived, who is essentially facilitating what I think is this abusive demonization campaign targeting me. Um, you know, and the other reason is I did play an instrumental role for many years in organizing the case, securing financing for legal expenses, um, speaking to the media, and I was just very visible. And I think Chevron wanted to, again, bring me down um, and cancel me out of the legal profession. So, you know, the first thing they did is they came to New York. Um, in the very court, by the way, where we had initially filed the lawsuit and where they said, no, no, we can't do the case there, the underlying environmental case. We want it in Ecuador and we accept jurisdiction there. So, you know, once they started to lose down in Ecuador, they came back to the court that was never good enough for them to sue me under the racketeering statute, a civil case. They first tried to get the Southern District of New York to prosecute me criminally, the SDNY refused. The case was bogus from the get-go for various reasons. They paid a witness that they found in Ecuador, a man named Alberto Guerra, $2 million, moved his whole family to the United States, coached him for 53 days, and he came into court before Judge Kaplan without a jury and claimed that he was in a meeting where I supposedly approved of a bribe of the trial judge in Ecuador, which is completely false. There's no evidence that happened. It did not happen other than the words out of his mouth, which Judge Kaplan, who's a former tobacco industry defense lawyer, credited over my good word as a lawyer that's never had a single ethical complaint filed by a client in 28 years of practice. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And I realized then that the fix was in, like without a jury, with a judge totally against me, with Chevron paying a witness to lie about me, they were gonna really use this case to try to bring me down. And they did, I, I couldn't testify on my own behalf. Um, Kaplan threatened me with jail if I even mentioned the word pollution. He wouldn't allow any evidence related to Chevron's contamination in Ecuador. Uh, you know, the whole basis of the verdict against them in Ecuador was this scientific evidence that had come out of those judicial inspections during this eight year trial. He wouldn't let that into evidence. 
he wouldn't let me put into evidence these counterclaims I had against Chevron that showed they had committed all sorts of crimes down in Ecuador to try to obstruct the case. So this was a rigged trial. It ended with Kaplan determining that I had committed fraud in Ecuador. Um, Chevron had dropped all money damages claims. By the way, they had sued me for $60 billion and I'm a human rights lawyer working out of a two bedroom apartment in Manhattan. I mean, I can't even explain what that means. They dropped all those money damages to avoid a jury because under the constitution in a civil case, you only get a jury if you're sued for money. So it was all kind of fixed and Judge Kaplan ruled against me. He then imposed after the trial, again with no jury, literally millions and millions of dollars of fines on me and ordered me to repay Chevron millions of dollars of their legal fees, knowing I didn't have the money. It bankrupted me. Chevron ended up taking my life savings. Um, Kaplan then went to the Manhattan Bar Grievance Committee, which regulates law licenses, and said, you really need to disbar this guy. Um, and they did without even giving me a hearing where I could challenge his false findings of fact, which by the way, have been contradicted by 28 appellate judges on six appellate courts in Ecuador and Canada, including the Supreme Courts of both countries. So this was all a manipulation of the legal system to bring down one of the lawyers who played an instrumental role in holding Chevron accountable. Now I'll say this, it hasn't worked. I mean, I know I'm in a hyper complicated situation. I've been locked up in my home now for over two years and I'll explain that in a second. But there's a lot of other lawyers working on this case in other jurisdictions preparing to enforce the judgment against Chevron. They are facing enormous financial risk, enormous reputational risk. Word is spreading around the world that they cannot be trusted to comply with the law in communities where they operate. And it's getting increasingly hard for Chevron to maintain a competitive position vis-a-vis -vis its peers in the oil industry as it you know, searches the world for more and more supply, which by the way, shouldn't be happening anyway because of global warming. But this case has put a real burden on Chevron in a way that other big oil companies simply don't have. So it has been successful. And we are still, or there, I should say the Ecuadorian communities are still planning on enforcing their judgment regardless of what happens to me personally. Were you able to uncover anything through the discovery process or other means about their sort of like plot to smear and destroy you? Yes, I was. Um, and it's just disgusting. I mean, for example, just to give you a couple of quick examples, um, a high level Chevron official wrote an email to a bunch of other high level Chevron officials in 2009 saying our long term strategy is to demonize Donziger. You know, that was their strategy to demonize me, try to criminalize me, and try to get me locked up um, as a criminal so they don't have to pay the tens of thousands of people in Ecuador who have suffered grievous harm because of their deliberate pollution. So, you know, that's one example. Another example is in the middle of our trial down in Ecuador, we found a document where they had hired a former high-level U.S. State Department official um, a former under the Bush administration, this is just before Barack Obama got elected, and they hired him um, to come up with a plan to go to the State Department to try to get the US government, that is taxpayers, to pay to make a $700 million donation, foreign aid, you know, grant 
to the government of Ecuador in exchange for the government kind of disappearing this private lawsuit of its own citizens. Um, we have the memo. I mean, it's that's the kind of that's the way they think. They're like, we don't really want to deal with the merits of the pollution claims or the case. Let's just get rid of it through political means. So they tried to enlist the Obama administration in this plot to basically bribe Ecuador's government to kill off the legal claims of their own citizens, which would be totally illegal under Ecuadorian law. It never went anywhere because Ecuador's government had enough dignity, or at least this particular government, to obviously not fall for such, you know, such efforts. But I mean, who thinks like that? You know, here you are, a defendant in a lawsuit, talking about Chevron, and like their lawyers and their general counsel and their CEO, they're like, let's get the U.S. government to help us, you know, screw over the people we poison in Ecuador. So they engage in all sorts of corrupt acts. And, you know, another example is this witness who came in and lied about me. I mean, the amount of money they were paying this guy, he, he had been earning $500 a month in Ecuador as his salary. And they brought him up here and started to pay him $12,000 a month, got him health care, paid all his income taxes, bought him a house, bought him a car. Um, and he's still getting, being paid hush money. You know, years later, he lives outside Chicago, as I understand it. You know, and there were constant attempts, you know, to file motions um, in Ecuador to delay the trial that were duplicative. I mean, just the same thing over and over as a way to throw sand into the gears of the justice system so it wouldn't function properly. They just play dirty, uh, Crystal, and I, I, I see this time and time again. What I didn't anticipate is that Judge Kaplan would kind of go along with it. I always thought, thought courts would be a bulwark to stop that kind of conduct. I'd never thought for the life of me that I would see a judge that would actually facilitate that kind of conduct as we've been seeing in this case. This make you lose faith in the criminal justice system? I've always been very realistic. I mean, our criminal justice system is has so many problems, as you folks know, you know, starting with police racism and on, over-sentencing, rates of incarceration are off the charts. It's brutal, you know, and it has its origin in, in the fact we are a, we were born as a racist society. Now, this is kind of a different type of situation, right? I'm a relatively privileged white male, went to Harvard Law School. Um, what's going on in my case is a whole new ballgame where you know, private corporation has essentially captured part of our federal judiciary to try to destroy their main credit. You know, I've been subject now to a corporate prosecution, um, which I'll explain in a second, but to answer your question directly, um, you know, I have some faith in the system. I have some faith that there are judges that adhere to the rule of law, but overall our system I think is relatively weak in every branch of government vis-a-vis -vis corporate power. I mean, we've seen this trend now my entire adult life, starting frankly with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. I'm older than you guys, but I voted. That was the first election I voted in. And you've just seen this increasing consolidation of corporate power and, and the Koch brothers funding plan, which really began in earnest, you know, 10, 15 years ago has totally accelerated this trend. You know, Trump, the Trump administration, of course, 
accelerated it even further as regards the judiciary because Trump and Mitch McConnell worked together to basically take over the federal judiciary with right-wing Federalist Society judges. And that whole energy is what's driving, in my view, Chevron's control of my case in a way that violates the rule of law and is causing me tremendous harm, including being locked up for two years in my home. <laughs> Wall Street Journal editorial board um, oh, had a this bunch of winners say. over there, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Steven Donziger gets his due. The lawyer who oh. tried to shake down Chevron loses his law license. Um, they describe your lawsuit against Chevron uh, as ranking among the biggest legal scams in history. They say the law finally caught up to Mr. Donziger this week as a New York court pulled his legal license. They see readers may recall Mr. Donziger's years-long effort to shake down Texaco, now Chevron, for its alleged failure to clean up oil pits that it had drilled in Ecuador during the 70s. Chevron claimed it had cleaned up the pits, but the plaintiff attorney exploited the left's loathing of big oil and Ecuador's shaky legal system. And many in the American media fell for it, too. Let's respond to that. You know, when you do human rights work and you're successful, it's kind of considered an honor to be attacked by the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I mean, you know, it's just they've attacked me eight times since the beginning of this case. And many of the editorials are written by Brett Stevens, of all people, who's now a New York Times columnist. So he used to work on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Look, this is not a shakedown. You know, Chevron poisoned tens of thousands of people. They admit it. They dumped the toxic waste. Courts have confirmed it. 28 judges, six appellate courts, including the Supreme Courts of Ecuador and Canada. There's one U.S. trial judge who didn't look at any of that evidence, relied on Chevron's paid witness and his false testimony to find me without a jury in a civil case guilty of extortion and fraud. So who are you going to believe? This one judge who wouldn't look at the evidence or 28 appellate judges, including the highest courts of Ecuador and Canada, who did look at the evidence. So Wall Street Journal hates plaintiff's lawyers. They hate human rights lawyers and they hate holding these big corporations accountable. So they write editorials like that, which kind of preach to their choir. But it's you know simply inaccurate, obviously. Give us the specifics of your current house arrest situation. Give everybody the backstory and how we got to this point where now you're over 700 days in house arrest. Yeah, this is this is really the rub. And it's really the culmination of a 10-year plan by Chevron to try to get me locked up. Remember I mentioned in the original RICO case, they tried to get the SDNY to prosecute me. They wouldn't. So they then concocted this scheme. You know, after Judge Kaplan ruled that I had committed fraud in Ecuador. And again, that was contradicted by 28 other judges. We kept going, our team, to enforce the Ecuador judgment around the world where Chevron has assets. They threatened the indigenous peoples with a lifetime of litigation unless they dropped the case. They're like, no, no, we're going to go forward and we're going to enforce the rule of law against you. So I was helping with this process, mostly up in Canada. I was raising money for it, and it was very successful. We were making progress. Um, and suddenly Chevron went back to Judge Kaplan and claimed that I personally owed them the millions of dollars of fines and court costs he had imposed on me without a jury. Um, I didn't have any money. They had taken the little money I had. 
And so they said, well, we want to see his computer and cell phone because we think he's hiding money somewhere. And they knew I was not. This was just a backdoor way to try to get confidential information, attorney client protected privileged information about what we were doing. The names of the other lawyers working on the case around the world where we were planning to file enforcement lawsuits. I was ethically obligated not to give them this confidential information. Instead, I appealed the order, which I believed and still believe was unlawful. And while I was appealing the lawfulness of this crazy order that no one had ever seen before, that is an order against an attorney to give over his computer to the other side's attorneys during a case. While I was appealing that, Judge Kaplan charging with criminal contempt of court for not complying with an order that was on appeal. I mean, it's never happened before. And it's consistent though with the pattern of Chevron and Judge Kaplan to manipulate the law, to change the law, to stretch the law beyond any place it's ever been before as a way to try to A, protect Chevron from having to pay the people of Ecuador, and B, to destroy me and hold me up as an example of what happens to successful human rights lawyers when they take on big oil companies or big polluters. So he charged me. Now I wanna say this, the charge is a misdemeanor. I have no criminal record. When I walked into court, he had me locked up and there has never been a lawyer or a citizen in the federal system charged with a misdemeanor with no criminal record who's ever spent a day detained, a day detained prior to trial, except me. And I have now spent 737 days. This is my 737th day. This was obviously an effort to punish me, but the story doesn't end there. I mean, it actually is worse because Judge Kaplan, when he charged me, was obligated by law to take the charges to the SDNY, the federal prosecutor in Manhattan, to see if they'd prosecute me. They refused the case. They declined to prosecute me, just like they had 10 years earlier when Chevron went to them. At that point, Judge Kaplan should have just dropped it. Instead, he appointed a private law firm, Seward and Kissel, to prosecute me. He never disclosed, and we found this out seven months later after I'd been detained in my home, he never disclosed that Seward and Kissel had Chevron as a client and had deep, deep, extensive financial ties to some of the biggest oil and gas companies in the United States. They were an oil and gas law firm that was being used to prosecute me. So essentially, I'm being prosecuted directly by Chevron not by the US government, which explains this completely irregular situation as to why I'm the only lawyer in US history locked up pretrial on a criminal contempt charge. That's a misdemeanor. You know, the, the maximum sentence I could get is six months in prison. I've been, you know, I've been in my home more than four times that amount. The longest sentence ever given a lawyer convicted, legitimately convicted of the crime of criminal contempt of court. And again, I don't believe I'm guilty of this crime for reasons I can explain, but the longest sentence, let's assume I am, 90 days of home confinement. I've served eight times, over eight times that amount. So we're calling on Judge Preska, who Kaplan appointed to oversee the case in violation of local rules requiring random assignment of criminal cases, by the way. She also has links to Chevron. She's a leader of the Federalist Society. Chevron's a major donor to the Federalist Society. But we're calling on Judge Prescott to do the right thing and end this now, release me and let my appeal go forward while I 
can be free, get my passport back and continue doing my human rights work. I believe we will win this case on appeal. It's, you cannot have corporate political um, criminal prosecutions in any rule of law country, much less the United States. And that's what I've been targeted with. Um, or a lawyer. But I've never heard of uh, the, the government declines to prosecute. SDNY says, no, we're taking a pass. And then a private prosecutor is hired and appointed. I've never heard of that. Isn't, is that, that, yeah, isn't that unconstitutional? Is that something that happens? I mean, is there precedent for that? Well, the, the way it's happening in my case is clearly unconstitutional, according to my very sophisticated lawyers who've analyzed this. But lawyers far more sophisticated than me in terms of these issues. It is unconstitutional. It's illegal. Um, now, it is possible to have a private prosecution under very rare, narrow circumstances when there might not be enough resources in a particular office to do a case, or there might be a conflict. So they have to appoint some other person to prosecute. The judge does. But at that point, first of all, the person appointed is not conflicted. They're disinterested. My private prosecutor totally has a flagrant conflict of interest. She's a Chevron lawyer. And second, the judge who charges is supposed to recuse him or herself once the case gets going. I mean, they obviously have a vested emotional interest in the case. They have to get out and let other judges and a disinterested prosecutor handle it. And in my case, Judge Kaplan charged me and he hasn't recused himself. He's working directly with Judge Prescott to prosecute me. So he's essentially the prosecutor, the judge and the jury in the same case. By the way, irony of ironies, the private Chevron prosecutor, Rita Glavin, also is Andrew Cuomo's personal lawyer. Um, who's been on TV the last few days, uh, you know, trying to defend Andrew Cuomo. And her defense is to attack the New York State AG's office for not giving information to them, exculpatory information for being biased. That's exactly what she's guilty of in targeting me. I mean, it's just extraordinary to watch that. I don't want to say anything that's going to get you in more trouble, so perhaps I'll just direct this comment at Crystal here. But it's, isn't there like something there and maybe enough there for an investigation to be opened up into Judge Kaplan for perhaps this is a character who's taken money from Chevron or other interests and is doing their bidding? What do you think, Steve? Um, no, I'm asking you because I don't want him to get in legal oh, trouble. Well, if I don't know. That wrong. So, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> whatever you could say about I'm it. I'm happy to answer that. I'm sorry, I'm happy to answer that by just relaying a fact that's happened, which is that 200 lawyers have actually filed a misconduct complaint against Judge Kaplan, where in about 50 pages and tons of footnotes, they document a 10-year campaign by him to target me and abuse his power to target me. Um, this was filed with the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which oversees Judge Kaplan and the other trial judges here in New York. And they dismissed it in like a two-page order without even an investigation. We have a problem, by the way, in that our federal judges, there's almost no accountability. I mean, the only real accountability is impeachment from Congress. It's happened four times in the history of our country. So, you know, if you're a judge in the federal system who, you know, doesn't sort of self-regulate and adhere to the law and try to abide by the rule of law. And if you sort of want to do your own thing and go after somebody, it's very, very hard for those judges to be stopped. I want to say this, I don't think there's a lot of judges who do that. The vast majority do not do that. They try to abide by the rule of law, but the tiny minority that do do it, 
and in this case, I believe Judge Kaplan is in that minority along with Judge Preska. I think they have calculated that they will not be stopped. They will get away with it. And look what's happened to me. You know, I've gone twice to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals to get this ankle bracelet off my ankle. And, you know, they're like, well, the standard is very deferential to the trial judge and we're bothered by it, but we're not going to do anything. So here I am two years later. You know, I have an ankle bracelet on my left ankle. By the way, I have a, a wife and a 15-year-old son. And it's just a huge burden on them. It's distressing. We can't do much. We can't plan. You know, they've robbed our ability to plan our lives, you know, to go places, to visit family, to move even, you know, move locations where we live. Um, and again, this has never happened before because I'm being prosecuted, not by the U.S. government, which refused to prosecute me, but by a Chevron law firm. And I think that's the scariest part of this, honestly. Like, we can't allow our country to descend into being that type of place, you know. And as many problems as the United States has, as many problems as our legal system has and the criminal justice issues, like, this has never happened before a corporation prosecuting someone and depriving that person of his liberty has never happened before. And, you know, we're asking people all over the world to step up and raise hell about this, to demand the Department of Justice, Biden administration, Department of Justice, take back this prosecution from the Chevron law firm and treat me professionally. I mean, I think if they were to do that, they'd probably dismiss the case. They'd at least release me or, or we, they'd at least deal with me in, in an ethical way you know, and not try to punish me just because I was successful in holding Chevron accountable. Actually just touched on the next thing I was thinking there, which is, is there anything that could potentially be done from a political angle? So a Biden pardon or commutation or the soon to be governor of New York, maybe getting involved in issuing some sort of uh, pardon or commutation? Well, it's a federal case, so it would have to come from the president of the United States. And, you know, people talked about calling for a pardon. And frankly, I think Joe Biden, if he wants to walk the walk on the climate issue, needs to do something about this. You know, we cannot have water protectors and earth defenders and human rights lawyers and people who deal with these environmental issues on the, who, on the front lines with all the risks that that entails be locked up especially in the United States of America, like it's happening on his watch. And he has the power, Joe Biden, his attorney general, Merrick Garland has the power to stop this. So stop it. You know, I'm supposed to be sentenced October 1st. I think Judge Kaplan and Judge Prescott plan to put me in jail that day. You know, jail? There's 30,000 people in Ecuador, you know, either dying or at risk of dying because Chevron poisoned them and I, help the people win a legal judgment that's been validated by multiple appellate courts and I'm going to jail? I mean, this is insane. So I am calling on the Biden administration and Merrick Garland, as are, by the way, 68 Nobel laureates, 37 bar associations, prominent lawyers like Marty Garbus and Ron Kuby and Clive Stafford Smith and so many others around the world to take back this prosecution from Chevron. You know, ironic, isn't it, that I'm probably the only lawyer in U.S. history who's begging the Department of Justice to prosecute him? I'm, I want them to prosecute me. Because right now I'm being prosecuted by Chevron. That's wrong. I think it'd be wrong for anyone to prosecute me because I didn't do anything wrong. 
you know, these were basically civil discovery disputes I have with Chevron that Judge Kaplan criminalized. But, you know, I'd much rather be prosecuted by a neutral, disinterested professional prosecutor than by Rita Glavin, who's a Chevron lawyer. What is next for you in terms of the legal process? Well, we have a fabulous appeal. Um, I'm fortunate to have a great team of new appellate lawyers who are going to come in and help me. They think this case could end up before the Supreme Court on this issue of the private prosecutor um, working for a judge. And there's all sorts of other problems with the case, including a lack of a jury and the fact Judge Preska wouldn't let me defend myself and explain why I did what I did. And the fact I'm the only lawyer in America who ever been charged criminally for appealing a civil discovery order. I mean, it's just an unbelievable. So we have a great appeal. I think the game now for Chevron is they're going to try to get me locked up. So I have to actually serve whatever sentence she's going to give me before my appeal can be decided. Because once my appeal is decided, if I win, it's all over. I win, even despite the fact I've spent all this time in home detention. Um, I win. So I think they want to jail me. I think they want to continue their process of trying to criminalize human rights lawyering and criminalize me. Luckily, I have a, a huge amount of support out there. Um, I think most people who look at this for even five minutes realize what's really happening and they don't think I'm a criminal and I'm not a criminal. Um, but, you know, then the elements that they play to, like the Wall Street Journal editorial board, you know, they, they're cheering them on. Um, and the, those elements have allies in the federal judiciary. So it remains to be seen how this is ultimately going to play out. But my plan is to, you know, we have a great appeal. We plan to win the appeal. And I'm hoping Judge Preska will release me on the day of sentencing, given the massive amount of time I've already served in my home. And, uh, and by the way, once, once all that happens, I plan to go back to my work. Yeah. You know, not just on the Ecuador case, but on other cases, if, if not as a lawyer, as a human rights advocate. Yeah. Funny enough, you just sort of stepped on my question because I was going to say you've been through a lot. Was it all worth it? Would you do it again? You know, I would. I, I take my obligations to my clients really seriously. I mean, I always have, always will. Um, you know, as I said on that first trip back in April of 93, what I saw, I couldn't turn my back on that. Now, I serve at the pleasure of people. I, I don't own the case. It's not my case. It's, it's the case of the people of Ecuador, the affected communities, indigenous and rural communities, and they, they want me as their lawyer. And they also want other people to help them, and other people do. Um, so, you know, could I leave the case at some point? Of course. I mean, there's so many things I want to do. And there are other lawyers who can pick up the mantle, but you know, I also have a huge amount of institutional, you know, memory of knowledge of this case and you know, important relationships that are necessary to really bring together the different elements, you know, the American lawyers and the Ecuadorian indigenous shamans. I mean, this is not easy. There's a huge cultural gap between a lot of people who work on this case and, and people affected at the community level. And a lot of that ability to sort of bring these different disparate worlds together effectively, um, I think comes from, from me, frankly, and it's a skill I wasn't born with. I mean, I learned it, I've been to Ecuador 250 times over the course of this case from New York. So those relationships are important. So I think I need to play, continue to play a role. Um, but of course I'd love to 
move on as well and do other things and do other cases and, and continue to speak out against environmental injustice and human rights violations, which is what I do. Able to just live your life and enjoy your family and, you know, be able to go and watch milestones for your son and go on vacation. I mean, it is I mean, absolute atrocity and crime what they've it, done you to know, you. know, because I try to kind of not hide it because frankly, so many people are worse off than me who do this work. I mean, 200 people a year get murdered wow. for defending the environment around the world. People are hurting all over the place. And my clients are, many have died. You know, I am living in my home, but it's just terrible. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's terrible for my son who can't enjoy the full benefit of his father, my wife. Uh, Every night I crawl into bed with an ankle bracelet that, that talks, it beeps. I mean, it is this 24-7 intrusion into your privacy, into your psychological peace. And it's designed to humiliate, you know. Now, I'm, I'm a, like a really, I believe I'm a very strong, resilient person. And, you know, we manage to create some degree of happiness in our home every day. We try our best because we are not going to let them get us. And we're really determined. Um, but that said, to, to act like there's no burden would be preposterous because it's it's difficult. And, and, you know, after two years, enough. Like, we get what you're doing. The world sees it. There's got to be judges in this country who, who can step in and end this ridiculous home incarceration on a misdemeanor that's lasted more than two years. I mean, this is not only terribly burdensome for me, it's not only violates my rights and the rights of my clients in Ecuador to have their lawyer. Um, it's an embarrassment to the United States of America. You know, it totally undermines the moral authority of our State Department, which by the way, purports to want to promote human rights and democracy around the world. Um, to, to speak about human rights problems in other countries when, you know, literally down the street, from the White House, not literally, but, you know, a three-hour train ride from the White House, there's a lawyer, you know, who, by the way, I'm a classmate of Barack Obama. You know, we were classmates in law school. I'm also a classmate of Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. He was in our class. And I'm locked up for winning a pollution case against a major polluter. So, you know, again, we're calling on Merrick Garland and the Biden administration to do something about this. Take the prosecution back from the, the private Chevron law firm. Please do it immediately. So last thing, Steve, um, if you could do two things for us. First of all, tell people who are listening what you want them to do. And second of all, we've just gotten the, the longer, more extended version of the story for people to be able to encapsulate what is happening to you and bullet point it to explain to friends, family, elected officials, et cetera, how would you explain your case in 30 seconds to a minute? Because I'll do the, the second question first. So it's real simple. You know, I helped indigenous peoples in the Amazon win a major pollution judgment against Chevron. They're refusing to pay. They poisoned the Amazon rainforest. They ended up killing a lot of people. And instead of paying, they hired uh, dozens of law firms to try to demonize and criminalize me. And they now attacked me in the United States in court. Um, and they are using one of their private law firms to prosecute me criminally for refusing to turn over my computer to them, which is illegal for me to do. 
And they've used that as a reason to lock me up in my home to prevent me from continuing my human rights work and for continuing my efforts to help the people of Ecuador enforce their judgment against Chevron such that lives can be saved. You know, so I repeat, we won, they lost. They hired a law firm in New York to attack me as the lawyer because we won. And they want to use this case against me to distract attention from the environmental crimes they committed in Ecuador and from the money they owe the people of Ecuador. And it really boils down to that. So what should people who are moved by this, what should they do? So we need help, um, meaning me, my family, and the people of Ecuador. And we have a fund that's called, it's a defense fund for for, to deal with all these legal issues called DonzigerDefense.com, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R-D-E-F-E-N-S-E, DonzigerDefense.com. You can go to that site and you can sign up and you'll hear about our actions. You can give money. We need money. We need, you know, it takes financial resources to deal with this monster company and it's dozens of law firms. So, you know, we rely on a lot of small donations. Even if you can only give a little bit, please give what you can. If you can give more, please give more. Um, and you can also, you know, again, take actions. If you go to that website, one of the actions we're asking people to take is contact Merrick Garland and demand he take back the prosecution. We're also, a bunch of people are going down to Washington in September to lobby Congress around my case during climate week. And we'll be announcing some actions relating to that soon. The key date is October 1st, it's my sentencing. I need everyone to come to court. I need support. I need for the judge and the Chevron law firm to see that there will be a cost to putting me in jail. Um, so again, it's October 1st in the federal court in, in lower Manhattan um, and details will be forthcoming on that, but it'll be the morning of October 1st and anyone around New York or who, or who can get here, please come to court that day. So keep me updated and we'll make sure to keep our audiences updated. Um, thank you for your time. Everybody out there listening, do what you can. Um, and I just, I don't even know what to say. I'm sorry this has happened to you. Um, it's an honor to get to speak to you. Your courage is incredible. I would be, I mean, I think I would have lost my mind by now, having gone through what you've gone through. Um, so stay strong and, you know, we'll Thank get our you. audience. We'll do everything we can on this end, what little that is. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much to both of you. I really, really appreciate the opportunity and the support. So that was Steve Donziger. Um, some of those details were new to me as well. But I mean, Kyle, is the first time you're hearing every aspect of what's been done to him. What's your reaction? My reaction is um, it's hard to argue that we don't already live in a corporatocracy. Yeah. Because, it, you know, you have basically like a private judicial system, effectively, yeah. um, bought and run by Chevron. Mm-hmm. And um, the results of that are absolutely disastrous. And I guess the thing that was most surprising to me in the story was actually the Judge Kaplan stuff. Because the whole idea is that, well, we have the system of checks and balances, and that's supposed to be beautiful, and that it leads to the best outcomes, and it stops abuses. But, you know, listen, if you have a situation where one of those people either just makes really terrible decisions, or it might even be more nefarious than that, and there might be money-changing hands and you know that we don't know about, when that happens, it's like, well, what is this guy supposed to do? He, you know, he does something that's 
really good in that he exposes crimes happening in Ecuador and how the indigenous population was being poisoned. And it's because of Chevron. He wins these cases all over the place. And then they basically decide to throw the book at him. And you have basically a corrupt prosecution and they keep him under house arrest. And it's almost too ridiculous to wrap your mind around like you think that can't be real and that can't be in the united states of america like you'd expect to hear that in some dictatorship Mm -hmm. you know that's got no uh legal system at all but no it's happening and it's happening in the united states of america and this is the result of big money running everything when it's oligarchs and billionaires and corporations that really get to make the decisions well this is what you get yeah i mean basically chevron chevron came up with this demonize Donziger mm-hmm. strategy, which was something that, you know, they were able to to see the memo, to see the email through discovery. They knew they had this one judge that they thought, you know, was going to be favorable to them. And just by having that one federal judge um, in their pocket, either explicitly or just doing their bidding for whatever reason, that's been able to completely control the direction of this case. And I mean... He's been disbarred. He's had his livelihood taken away from him. They took his savings, um, bankrupted him. He supposedly owes, you know, millions of dollars in in legal fees that he could never hope to pay. Um, All because you have this one corrupt judge operating with complete and utter impunity. And, um, you know, certainly the Trump administration wasn't going to do anything about it, but the Biden administration also hasn't stepped up to ultimately do anything about it. I mean, that really says it all is he's like, please, DOJ, take this over and prosecute me instead of because he knows that they can't prosecute this him. private prosecutor right. because this is so ridiculous. I mean, that's the other piece that always strikes me is like, even if and it's not, but even if he was guilty of contempt in what they yeah, say, yeah, he says here's the pun- punishment. Here's the punishment, and I would already have served my whole thing by eight far. times over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, and they keep him locked up with an ankle bracelet. I mean, this is it's insane. Let me let me explain something. I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because it's about making an example out of him. That's exactly so. Right. The That's whole exactly idea right. is oh. If you're an up-and-comer, if you're a young whippersnapper and you want to be a human rights lawyer or you want to, you know, challenge power and authority, well, think again. Because if you do, look at what happened to this guy. This is exactly why they threw the book at Edward Snowden. That's exactly why they're mm-hmm. throwing the book at Julian Assange. It's because Snowden shows that the NSA is spying on everybody and collecting everybody's metadata. He let that information out. And they are making sure that they go after him because they don't know what the next whistleblower might reveal. And so, you know, you got to nip it in the bud. You got to go after them with everything you got. In the case of Julian Assange, exposing U.S. war crimes, they're afraid, okay, well, if you pardon Julian Assange, you let Julian Assange go. Well, then what happens if all of our war crimes get out? And like there's nonstop whistleblowing because then they know that you lose legitimacy. There's a crisis of legitimacy and everybody knows that, you know, this is a corrupt, backwards, disgusting system. But the fact of the matter is, if you're paying attention... You can already see it's a corrupt, disgusting, rotten system. And the evidence of that is what they're doing to Donziger, what they're doing uh, to yeah. Edward Snowden, what they're doing to Julian Assange. Yeah. So, listen, he just made my list in my rants of, like, you know, pardon Assange, pardon Snowden, and pardon, pardon. Donziger. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the other part that I thought was really revealing, this was a new detail to me, was that Chevron went to the United States government and tried to persuade them of, like, give some aid to Ecuador and convince them to, like, take that aid 
instead of enforcing this multi-billion dollar judgment against us. And why I think that's so, even though that didn't work, it's very revealing to me that they thought there was a good chance that could work. Like that kind of says it all that they, um, you know, felt like, hey, we got it in at the Bush administration. We could probably get this done and then this will be all cleaned up and tidied up. Like how many, that's the way that they think about the world. They don't think about the laws applying to them. They're constantly just doing like a cost benefit risk analysis Mm. of it's cheaper for us to poison tens of thousands of indigenous people in Ecuador than to clean up these pits. And we calculate that no matter what, we're probably not going to have to pay. So, you know, for us, for the bottom line, it's it's more beneficial for our profit margin to poison the people and then, you know, just not even even when they lose in court and the judgment is goes against them. We're just not going to pay and we're just going to act with total and utter impunity. You know, he said there that they spent like three or four billion dollars on legal fees. And I I guess my question would be, if you're going to spend three or four billion dollars in legal fees, why didn't you just take that three or four billion dollars or just take two billion dollars up front and just clean up the mess you made? Yeah. And maybe pay some damages to the people. It's because of what you just said. They had they have to make an example of him. They have to make it. It's just funny because even but uh, my my point is like, yeah, Maybe even if you had an accurate cost-benefit analysis, it would have saved money to just pay people damages and clean up the stuff. But, yeah, they want to make sure that this doesn't happen over and over and over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah, because I'm sure Ecuador is not the only place Oh, and the planet where it, they're The whole world has been, like, poisoning. totally destroyed by, by corporations. Yeah, yeah totally. No, it's, it is wild. It is absolutely dystopian. And as you said, it really underscores the fact that like we're already there in terms of a living in a corporatocracy that if they want to go after you, if they want to destroy you and, you know, keep you confined in your home, they will do it because scary. it only takes a few totally corrupt actors who have very little accountability and a, a vast amount of power to end up with the unconscionable situation that you see. And listen, I mean, I, another interview that I did with Steve, um, he said something to me, the effect of like, this has already worked in terms of the next human rights lawyer, you know, this weighs into their calculation of whether they're going to take on Chevron, whether they're going to take on Exxon, whether they're going to take on whatever the giant multinational corporation with all kinds of power is and what that cost is going to look like for them in terms of their personal life. And you can't ask everybody to be willing to be, you know, frankly, the hero that Steve Donziger has been. Yeah. Um, And I think we just made Chevron's hit list. (laughs) <laughs> I think we just made their I hit think list. I may already have been there. On Chevron's hit list? <laughs> yeah, well, I've talked about oh. this case a good bit. Oh, okay. So. I was going to say, that it would be oddly specific if it was this one company that was, you know, that we made the hit list of, but yeah, we may have. Cause yeah. They clearly, they clearly have it out for him. And we're clearly, you know, megaphoning his message as far and wide as we can, so. Yeah. Well, all I can say to you guys is, um, you know, check out, what do you say, Steve Donziger Defense and um, see what the actions are. I've been following the case closely. I'm in touch with Steve. He, you know, sends me stuff that's going on. So we'll keep you updated on what is happening. But um, just a very revealing and disturbing look at uh, the reality of America and our so-called justice system. That's right. And uh, shameless plug time. If you support uh, what you're listening to now or what you're watching now, uh, please consider subscribing on Substack. It's $5 a month, and you end up getting the 
video version of the podcast and you get it a day early. Um, obviously, this is free to everybody in audio form a day later on Saturdays. So, But if you do support what we're doing, remember, we take $0.00 from any corporate advertisers, from any advertisers, period. We don't period. take any other money for this show outside of the $5 a month donations that you guys do, which you're basically tipping us to continue to do the show $5 a month. So um, thank you very much to everybody who already does it. We love you. And uh, we love you also if you just happen to be listening, maybe slightly <laughs> less, but we love we love you also. Uh, yeah, and there you have it. All right, guys, have a good week. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs>